And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made and rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. I'm Sarah. How are you doing today, Sarah? (laughs) I'm doing okay. I biked 13 kilometers. Yes, and it's summer. Yes. (laughs) But yeah, I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, We were out with some of our friends last night for a bit of a birthday get-together for me. Doing doing pretty good. After that, I had a great time. Um, <laughs> Not hungover? No, no, I'm all right. Certainly, I won't be hungover by the time this uh, episode goes up, which will be some point in the future of these events that I'm describing now. These words come to you from the past. So what are we watching today, Ben? <laughs> today, we are watching The Student of Prague, Der Student von Prague. Again? <laughs> so, uh, we are watching a remake because the trend or desire to remake popular movies over and over again for new audiences every few years is not solely the purview of modern day Hollywood. It is a <laughs> long standing tradition in film. We've seen a few different versions of stuff like Jekyll and Hyde before, but yeah. those were sort of cases of readapting an existing source material, uh, in that case, a book. This is a straight-up remake of the 1913 Student of Prague, which was one of our one of our first episodes. Is that episode two? It's episode two. It was our very first feature film. Right. And uh, this remake is from 1926. It is written and directed by Henrik Galeen. Mm. Now, Galeen had not worked on the original Student of Prague, which had been written and directed by Paul Wigner. Um, but Galeen had worked with Wigner on the original 1915 version of The Golem, mm-hmm. the one that was lost that we did not see. And then uh, Galeen, of course, would go on to write Nosferatu, uh, which we have also previously covered, mm-hmm. um, and then also wrote the 1924 expressionist anthology film Waxworks, which was directed by a man named Paul Lini. Is that lost? No, that's that's existing. That's a, a popular film. It's just not a horror film, so we never covered it. Okay, it sounds like it's a horror film. Yeah, and it gets lumped under the category of horror film due to its director and its writer and its visual style and its actors, but it's, it's an anthology film about a, a wax museum, and each figure in the wax museum gets a little story, and they range from drama to comedy to thriller, but it's not a horror film. Okay. Now, this remake of Student of Prague is actually considered to be Henrik Galeen's masterpiece. Uh, It is seen as being his most important film, and it's widely regarded by critics as a crowning achievement of the German expressionist cinematic style. Interesting. So, with that in mind, I thought it would be good for our audience to get sort of a update or recap on German Expressionism, as we've been kind of watching American movies for the past several episodes. We haven't been over in Germany since uh, Hands of Orlack. Yeah. The last time I gave kind of an overview of German Expressionism, and it was quite extensive, was in episode 5, our episode on The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, mm-hmm. um, which makes sense since that film is kind of like the film <laughs> to point to for A, 
the first film to do German Expressionism and B, the German film to do it so purely. Yeah, it, it really goes for it. And even in subsequent Expressionist films that we've watched, we've seen them kind of get more naturalistic or evolve the style. And when I gave the overview, I did focus more on early types of German Expressionism. By now, we've really seen how it's had influence internationally, um, mm -hmm. especially with uh, The Bat in episode 16. Mm -hmm. um, the Bat was 1926, Caligari, was, Caligari is 1920, so six years. The first German Expressionist films use these geometric shapes, a lot of painted lighting, all to demonstrate the externalized view of a character's madness, sense of betrayal, etc., etc. I've talked about this a lot for the podcast. <laughs> for sure. Kind of what you were mentioning earlier, Ben, from Caligari to Orlok's Hand, pointing to those two specifically because Conrad Veidt is in both of those, <laughs> we see kind of a calming, isn't the right word, but kind of a settling in of the style. We go from cutouts of trees to just cavernous rooms. Mm -hmm. um, we go to literally painting the light on the set to using actual lighting to get kind of the same effects. So even though German Expressionism is still always this reaction against realism, German Expressionism began to achieve these emotionally charged sets and moods in less artificial ways. Right, yeah. German Expressionism would continue to push for this sense of mood with using mise-en-scene to show the character's emotional state. Mm -hmm. You know, it wouldn't quite fully develop beyond that because in 1933, the Nazis would kind of squash the movement in their purges of books and other cultural artifacts for being decadent yeah. throughout the 30s. Yeah. Um, so we're not quite there yet, but... German Expressionism will continue on the road that it's already been going on. Yeah, and I think, you know, then what you get once the Nazis come to power is the directors who fled from Germany and came to Hollywood, uh, like Murnau and Fritz Lang and stuff, bringing then those sensibilities over to Hollywood. And as we talked about in that Caligari episode, those sensibilities kind of morphing into film noir by the time you get to the 40s. Yeah, it morphs and evolves into those styles, but the title of German Expressionism stays in pre-Nazi Germany. Yeah, honestly. absolutely. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it, by the time it evolves into film noir, it's film noir. It's a different thing. Yeah, um, totally. You know, It's like Pikachu to Raichu. I was just about to make that joke. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the Nazis are going to come to power in 1933, you said. Yeah. Yeah, so we're not quite there yet in 1926. When we talked about... German Expressionism, originally we talked about it as something that had risen out of the traumas of World War One, which mm -hmm. ended in 1919. So we're kind of halfway between those two extremes right now. Where <laughs> Where's Germany at? Poor Germany. <laughs> the last time I, I kind of talked about Germany's history was uh, episode four with Eerie Tales. And with that episode, I kind of ended with the 1918-1919 German Revolution that gave Germany the Weimar Republic. Mm -hmm. 
Kind of after that, we have in June 1919, the Treaty of Versailles was signed. That was signed by all the participants of World War One, with basically Germany having to sign away any kind of territories that they won during the war, as well as establishing the war reparations that Germany had to pay. And uh, yeah, it was quite extensive what they would have to pay back. In 1920, as part of the Treaty of Versailles, the German military force needed to be reduced to 100,000 men, which meant that a lot of the corps that were disbanded were made up of volunteers. Mm -hmm. So suddenly you have all of these people who had volunteered for the war told to go back home. Now they have nothing to do but feel resentment about all of about the situation that yeah. they're in, yeah, which led to quite a few coups and uh, uprisings mm -hmm. against the government. In 1918, as part of the revolution that created the Weimar Republic, uh, the Communist Party of Germany was created. In 1919, the Communist Party had attempted a coup. Uh, it failed. And then one of the biggest Examples of these many coups is uh, in March 1920 was the Kapp Uh So Wolfgang Kapp, uh, he led a coup on Berlin. Uh, he won, I guess, uh, and declared himself Chancellor of the Reich. Mm -hmm. Chancellor being like Germany's prime minister and yeah. Germany's president being like head, head of, state. of state. If you're an American listener, the head of the state and the head of the government is the same guy in America. It's just the president. Yeah. Um, but many other countries have that role divided into two people. So for Germany, yeah, it's the chancellor and the president. So Wolfgang Kapp was chancellor for four days. Oh, nice. Uh, before everything fell to shit. There were many other revolts, a lot of them uh, bloodily <laughs> suppressed. And then the next kind of famous one is uh, in 1923, someone who will become pretty well known later on named uh, Adolf Hitler led the National Socialist German Workers' Party in a failed coup commonly called the uh, Munich Push or the Beer Hall Push. That's around like 1920 to 1923. Uh -huh. Meanwhile, Germany's having a, a real hard time paying back these reparations. In 1921, there was a new bill drafted that reconfigured the reparations to what Germany could pay versus what the other countries said was owed. Mm -hmm. um, so to kind of make it more achievable to pay people back. Yeah. So even though this reparations bill was supposed to make it easier for German to pay things back, the way that they thought about paying people back was to just print more money. Right, which is how you get inflation. Hyperinflation in the case of Germany. The London ultimatum in 1921 meant that reparations had to be paid in gold or hard currency, so foreign currency. Yeah, not the German paper money that had become so devalued because of the hyperinflation. Yeah, it all goes downhill from here in terms of inflation it seems because inflation was already happening, so then the London ultimatum was like, all right, well, then pay us in gold. Mm -hmm. And so then Germany was like, ah, to afford the gold, we will print more money oh, so no, we can buy Germany. more gold. No, Germany, that's not how that works. Yeah. Oh, boy. By fall of 1922, marks were practically worthless. And in 1923, Germany defaulted on these reparation payments. So France and Belgian troops occupied the industrialized 
Ruhr district, which is in West Germany near the Rhine River. They did this because um, it was a way to ensure payment. If we occupy where Germany is most industrialized, we can just take their coal yeah, kind of thing. Sure. The German government encouraged citizens to do passive resistance. Uh, so if you have French and Belgian soldiers come to your bar, close the bar. Um, right. If they come onto your bus for public transit, just like stop the bus and don't don't serve them. Mm. So things like that, which was successful, except <laughs> to help support the passive resistance, Germany printed more money. Ugh. So by 1923, one American dollar was worth the same as 4.2 trillion German marks. Ugh. So, not, not good. Yeah, I, I remember, like, reading stuff in high school about this period, and, you know, people talking about, like, people just burning marks for, like, fire, because, like, they were so worthless. Yeah. That, like, it, your paper money was more worthful as, as kindling. Worthful? Yeah, worth like the opposite of worthless okay. as a word. I might have made up that word. Okay. In November of 1923, um, the chancellor at the time, Gustav Stresemann, he created a new currency called the Rutenmark or Reichsmark. Mm -hmm. And this was to kind of hit the reset button on the German currency and uh, kind of start from scratch. By 1928... The economic situation had bettered, and Germany was actually at pre-war levels of industrial production. So things were on the up and up. Mm -hmm. In 1924, there was an election and uh, kind of a political shift more to the right. And in 1925, President Paul von Hindenburg uh, was elected. Yeah, Hindenburg had been um, one of the main military leaders yeah. of Germany in World War One. He very much didn't want to be president, but was like, no, someone has to do it. Someone has to make Germany great again. Um, and kind of played the president role as if he was a, a constitutional monarch. So that was in 1925. By around 1926, he started kind of pushing the idea of changing the German government system into a presidential government system, which I, I didn't want to go into too much detail about, but it would kind of look like how the United States has that, um, in theory, has the balance of power between the judicial, executive, whatever, yeah. kind of systems. So, you know, Germany right now is a little more stable than past years. This is probably the most stable it will be between 1923 and 1929. 1929, of course, being when the Great Depression hits and the market crash happens, mm -hmm. and then it's all downhill again from there. Mm -hmm. So that's where Germany's at right now mm -hmm. in the context of this film from 1926. Yeah, so doing better as a, as a country, more or less, than um, it has maybe in previous years when we've seen horror films from Germany. Mm -hmm. um, and so it'll be interesting to see like what effect that has on the film itself. This version of Student of Prague, the original had been written and directed and starring Paul Wiedner. Mm -hmm. uh, this, this remake is written and directed by Henrik Galeen, but starring in the title role, in the Baldwin role, is going to be Conrad Veidt. We last saw Veidt in Hands of Orlac uh, two years earlier, 
And since then, he has appeared in seven more films, <laughs> including the drama Carlos and Elizabeth, uh, as well as the aforementioned anthology Waxworks, directed by Paul Lenny, and then also uh, the dramas Count Costia, Destiny, Fiddler of Florence, Should We Be Silent, Flight in the Night, and The Women's Crusade. I like that Should We Be Silent would be a silent film. Sure, sure, of course. <laughs> Student of Prague would end up being Veit's last film in Germany for a time, um, as Waxworks director Paul Lenny would be invited by Carl Lemley to come to America to direct films for Universal Studios, and he would end up bringing Veit along with him, uh, where he would largely serve as Universal Studios' replacement for Lon Chaney. Uh, in films like 1928's The Man Who Laughs and 1929's The Last Performance. However, the rise of sound film would end up forcing Veit to return to Germany as he could not speak English. Right, right. Uh, after he returned to Germany, his marriage to a Jewish woman would render him unemployable in Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. um, so he and his wife ended up fleeing to Britain in 1933, where he worked to perfect his English so that he could continue acting, uh, eventually coming to Hollywood again, often choosing roles which would villainize Nazis. He would often play Nazis in an explicitly villainous way uh, to try and do films that would serve to turn the American population, which was neutral for some time, against Nazi Germany. Uh, one of the most famous instances of this would be his role in Casablanca. Hmm. Now, the Scapinelli role uh, in Student of Prague had been played by uh, John Gatote in the original. In this version, it is Werner Krauss, uh, who we last saw opposite Conrad Veidt in Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. He played Caligari in that film. Right. Now, in the time since Caligari, Krauss has appeared in 53 films in the past six years gaining him a reputation as one of the greatest German film and stage actors of all time. <laughs> uh, he was just immensely critically acclaimed in this period. Uh, some of his films in this period include adaptations of The Brothers Karamazov, uh, Othello, Merchant of Venice, the biblical drama INRI, uh, Waxworks as well, uh, Women's Crusade. He was often paired up with Conrad Veidt in many of these films. But unlike Veidt, Krauss would end up staying in Germany throughout the Nazi years uh, because he was an unapologetic anti-Semite. Big, big supporter of the Nazis and, and their whole thing. He would end up appearing in Nazi propaganda films like uh, Jud Zuss and uh, was actually placed on a list of indispensable German artists, which made him exempt from military service in World War II. So it's, it's sort of interesting just to have Veidt and Krauss were so often paired in the 1920s, but would end up having such sort of different life paths following the, the rise of the Nazis to power. Uh, Henrik Galeen would also end up fleeing Nazi Germany as he was uh, an Austrian Jew and uh, fled to Switzerland, I believe, uh, in the post-Nazi period uh, and eventually came to the United States as well. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, this version of Student of Prague was very highly critically regarded. 
upon its release. It was seen as a new high point in German Expressionist cinema, and it sort of solidified Henrik Gleen's reputation as a filmmaker. It was already pretty good, but this really was like the film that canonized him in that period. Uh, despite how well regarded this film was when it came out, the options for viewing it in North America are quite limited. Mm. The only DVD release of the film in North America comes from Alpha Video, which is a really poor rate company. Their release is sourced from a VHS transfer of a 16mm print. It has very, very poor visual quality and is also played at an incorrect frame rate, so all the motion in the film is sped up. This is a very common mistake that you see on bad transfers of silent film, uh, because silent film was often shot at a rate of 18 frames per second, whereas sound film is 24. So if you play a silent film at the speed of sound film, everything appears super sped up and jittery, and that's what happens on this DVD of Student of Prague. Why are the frame rates different between silent and sound? It mostly has to do with synchronizing your film with whatever um, media you're recording the sound on. Okay. Uh, so it has to do with sound synchronization, uh, okay. for the most part. Now, Alpha offers this DVD in a two-pack with a similarly garbage-quality version of the 1913 Student of Prague, uh, which is missing about half its running time or so. Uh, it's not the restored version that we watched. Um, so this is kind of what you're left with for watching the movie in North America. However... That's not what we're going to be watching today. Oh. Uh, and not what I recommend our viewers listening along watch either. We're in luck because YouTube user Anastasia the Twelfth has uploaded a very high-quality transfer of a very well-sourced German VHS of the film with the original intertitles and music. Uh, she initially had subtitles available only in Spanish, uh, but she actually uploaded English ones as well when I commented on the lack of English subtitles on her upload. Uh, so a big thanks to Anastasia for allowing us to enjoy uh, this classic film for the show. Thank you, Anastasia. Yeah. So that is how we'll be watching it, and that upload has been added to the Scream Scene playlist as well. Cool. So, folks, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss the film... See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching the 1926 remake of Student of Prague starring Conrad Veidt, and it was pretty dang good. Yeah, it was a great movie. Yeah, it was a very well done remake in terms of using new techniques to tell the same story and Im improving on that story. Mm -hmm, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. One of the joys of this podcast is when we can watch a movie we've never seen before and really enjoy it. Yeah. And to see, to see the evolution of Conrad Veidt's acting a little bit. Honestly, like we're seeing snapshots, really. Mm -hmm. Like he's producing like 
he's involved in like 20 films a year or something like that. Um, but yeah, he just keeps getting better and better. There's also just the evolution of film, right? I mean, the last yeah. time we saw Student of Prague, that was our first feature film that we saw for the podcast. And, you know, to go from there to here, right? Yeah. The plot's pretty similar in the broad strokes to the original. Mm -hmm. uh, I think for the most part, like scene for scene, they match up pretty well. But within those scenes, there are some differences, and also we shouldn't assume that listeners have listened to episode two. So let's do our plot summary. Sure. So once again, Baldwin is a student in the city of Prague in 1820, and he is the best fencer in the city. And the film starts with sort of a gathering of students, and they're having a, a great time, except for Baldwin, who's mopey, because he is poor. And so far, this is, this is pretty similar to how the original opens. The first kind of change, I would say, from the original is one that I really appreciated, where we again have Ladushka, who, in this version, I read more as just kind of being poor than being explicitly ethnic. A lot of the things that coded her as being kind of an ethnic poverty character weren't in this film so much, but she was still clearly like a poor girl. Yeah, totally. So she's um, flirting with a lot of the students, and some of them are getting a little too handsy and uh, violating, you know, her personal space. And so Baldwin and this other student end up in a duel, Baldwin coming to her defense. Actually, no. He doesn't come to her defense. He comes to his own defense. Th this is true. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. That's a very good point to make, in fact, yes. So when... a student rips Ladushka's dress, and she's, like, really upset about it. And he's like, oh, don't worry about it. Baldwin will buy you a new apron. And, of course, Baldwin's just finished his big speech about how he has no money. Yeah, and so he, like, comes over and he's like, I challenge you to a duel. Yeah, it's, you're right, though. Like, it's ostensibly over this incident with Lajushka, but you're right. And it's a good point to make that it is basically to defend his own honor. But it is the moment that Ladushka becomes infatuated with him. Right. So she has, like, a stronger motivation for this. And also we actually get to see Baldwin Fence, which was one of my complaints about the original, was that it was something that was only talked about but never shown. Mm -hmm. So we get this dueling scene. We see that Baldwin's a great fencer. And he, after that's over, he runs into Scapinelli. Uh, and once again, they have the exchange where Baldwin's poor and he wishes that he could find a rich heiress to marry, and Scapinelli's like, oh. And then we get another change. Mm -hmm. um, in the original film, Scapinelli and Baldwin had just kind of been walking along a street, and the Countess Margaret had had a bit of a horse riding accident, and Baldwin saved her, and that started their romance. This time, we get this set up that Margaret and her fiancé, Baron Valdis, and her father and a bunch of other noble people are out doing a hunt, and Scapinelli gets up on, like, a hilltop and, like, directs the hunt like he's Sorcerer Mickey from Fantasia, like, <laughs> waving his arms around dramatically as the hunt moves this way and that so that he can basically direct it towards where Baldwin and the other students are so that he can create this meetup between mm -hmm. Baldwin and Margaret. So we have this feeling of a greater level of manipulation of Scapinelli and also kind of a, a leveling up of his like powers. magical powers. Yeah. Baldwin and Margaret meet up and he saves her because she's has this accident on her horse. And it's so much better than the original one where she just kind of got flung off her horse into about half 
a centimeter of water and started <laughs> drowning in that half centimeter and he rescued her. Here, like, her horse goes out of control and there's a lot of crazy quick cut editing and he... Which was really impressive to yes. see in a film of this vintage. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, he rescues her and she gives him, as a token of appreciation, her crucifix as something to remember her by. And Baldwin becomes infatuated with her. It's less of a the two of them fall in love at first sight, I think, and more of he becomes infatuated with her and now Ladushka is infatuated with him. We get a scene that I think was in the original, but this remake does this thing where it pretty much plays out every scene that was in the original, but makes them all feel like they're actually contributing to the story so much more. Mm -hmm. They have a bit more depth. Yeah. Ladushka, who's like a flower girl, like she sells flowers on the street corner, she offers Baldwin this nice little bouquet of flowers that she's picked out just for him as like a gift. He's oblivious to what she's trying to do and just pays her for them and takes them and then goes all the way over to Margit's to give them to her, but gets outdone in flower mastery by Baron Valdis, her fiance, which makes it clear to Baldwin that like he's not in her league yeah. and he's going to need to level up his coffers if he's going to compete. I think that whole thing's in the first one. Yeah, what was interesting about this one, though, was you got more of a sense of character psychology in Baldwin just kind of, like, not getting that Ladushka's into him mm -hmm. and ignoring her in favor of his own goals and then also, you know, the the idea of him needing the money to be with her becoming, feeling a lot more clear. When he comes back to his apartment, uh, him and Ladushka have a scene... Where... Because Ladushka snuck into his his apartment yeah. when he left and just started cleaning the place like it's Chungking Express or something. Right, like as a way to show that she loves him. Ladushka does the same things in this movie, but she feels so much more fleshed out. I think that has something to do with the acting a bit as well. Yeah. Everyone in this movie is probably a better actor than the original. I mean, it helps that this film has close-ups. So we can actually see what they're emoting. Yes, Ladushka and Baldwin meet up when he gets back from Margit's, and Baldwin's just so upset over not being able to get with Margit that he basically doesn't even pay attention to Ladushka and crumples up the flowers that she intended for him and that he could not give to Margit and throws them out. And so she's heartbroken, he's upset. Mm -hmm. And now Scapinelli comes to the apartment. Yeah, um, and so we have the same kind of scene of him pulling out his coin purse that's so small and, like, all of this money comes out. I feel like that part was better done in the first one. I do agree with you that I thought that the magic trick of the bag full of money was better in the original. And part of me was wondering whether it was because the original was focused on showing you the trick and making you go, oh, and this version's more just focused on telling you the story. Yeah, and showing us people's faces rather mm -hmm. than the magic trick. Yeah. So Scapinelli shows up, and it's the same deal. He's going to give Baldwin a ton of cash, 600,000 gold pieces, in exchange for one thing in Baldwin's room. And just like in the original, that thing is Baldwin's reflection out of the mirror, and we get the scene of Baldwin's reflection coming out of the mirror. And I have to say that Conrad Veidt's performance in this film as Baldwin makes so much of a difference uh, versus Paul Wigner's. And it's something I want to obviously talk about more in depth later. But just the fact that as the double, Conrad Veidt has such a kind of dead-eyed, Terminator-esque, kind of slow pace and walk and deliberate nature is so effective as he steps out of that mirror. Totally with you there. 
The mirror was really neat because you had Scapinelli peering into the mirror, so you see his reflection, and I'm pretty sure that was an actual reflection because, like, yeah. usually if it's, it. like, an actor, you can kind of see, like, slight differences. You can see enough of both of their faces. Yeah, but, I mean, I was waiting for, like, in the first one, the doppelganger comes out, and then Scapinelli leaves with him, and there's, like, a weird fade where, like, Scapinelli turns into like death with the scythe and there's like a skull in his face just mm -hmm. for a split second as he walks out the door and I was waiting for that in this one the doppelganger walks out of the mirror it's like real spooky and then there's just like a quick scene cut yeah we don't get the bit of Scapinelli walking out with the doppelganger and it felt like I don't want it to seem like I'm ragging on this movie because I do think this is a really good movie but the scene transitions were also really jarring mm -hmm. um the case with the doppelganger coming out of the mirror um, and then the scene switch to something else. It was, like, really jarring. It didn't seem to flow as nicely. Sure. I mean, I don't know how... I'll agree with you, like, this film does a lot of sudden cuts. Um, it doesn't move at the languid pace that the original had, even though I think this is the longer film. Um, but that's because this film fleshes out the characters to a much greater yeah. degree. I do wonder how much someone who had, you know, never seen the original would, you know, find that to be a weird cut or not. Because uh, certainly, you know, we're sitting here, we're expecting to see a thing that we then don't see, right? Yeah, that's very true. So Baldwin's now flush with cash. And he donates a ton of it to the other students to support them uh, and becomes very popular for that, you know, big man on campus. And he shows up to go to a uh, big party that Margaret and Baron Valdis and her father are going to be at. And at that party, he ends up slipping Margaret a note saying to come and meet him at the cemetery. And like in the original, Ladishka has followed him. Mm -hmm. But unlike in the original, she's not just standing around where people can clearly see her listening into conversations. Instead, Baldwin has given Margaret a note and she sort of places the note on a ledge, uh, uh, the railing of the balcony that they're standing on. And Ladushka's down below this balcony in kind of the yard of this large building. And we see the shadow of Scapinelli reach up over along the wall and knock the note off so that Ladushka can get it and know where they're going. Yeah, that was really cool. Mm -hmm. It's sort of an expansion of, you know, we had this ever-expanding use of shadows in these films where it started in Caligari where it was just a way to show us something without showing us something. And then we get to Nosferatu who's climbing up the stairs as a shadow and, and grabbing people's hearts as a shadow. And then we go to stuff like The Bat where we have people opening and closing doors just as shadows. And now we've got this you know, very explicitly magical person doing stuff as a shadow. It's, it's this, like, one-upmanship of <laughs> shadow monsters. Baldwin and Margaret go to the cemetery. Baldwin's double creeps on them during this. Yeah. And Ladushka gives the note that she's got to Baron Valdis, and that's how he finds out that, uh, you know, Baldwin and his girl have been getting together. And uh, he's pissed off about it, and it leads to the two of them arranging a duel. Very similarly... Um, and, and, and this is sort of interesting to me, was that in this version, Valdis is just sort of offended by Baldwin and confronts him. But it's Baldwin who calls on the duel. Egged on by his friends. Egged on by his friends. After Valdis has kind of called him out on things. Just like last time, Margaret's father goes to Baldwin to say, Hey, 
don't duel this guy. I really need him to marry Margit. You're the best fencer in Prague. It was uh, to not kill him. Yes, yeah, because I need him to... Carry on the line in some sort of way. Yeah. We get to the duel, and Baldwin, his, like, carriage has gotten into an accident. Uh, Lost a wheel. Lost a wheel. So he's, like, afraid he's going to be late. So he hops out of the carriage and, like, runs to the duel to get there in time. I think this one scene was probably, to me, felt the most, like, shot-for-shot identical to the original. Definitely. Where Baldwin and his double meet up, and his double's got the sword and wipes the blood off the sword. But... Conrad Veidt does such interesting stuff with the acting here, the expression on the double's face after killing this guy. Yeah, he looks remorseful. He looks incredibly upset that he was forced to do this. Yeah, as opposed to the original who kind of had a, like, sly, (laughs) like... Yeah, exactly. And he doesn't wipe the blood off. He looks at the sword as if, like, there's blood on it. Oh, that's true. You're right. And looks so incredibly upset and then, like, starts to walk off. And then Baldwin runs off to see what happened with the duel. One thing that's very visually effective in this film is that primary Baldwin, I'll call him, when he gets rich, like, he buys himself all these fancy clothes to wear, and but double Baldwin always stays in his student uniform, so we always kind of know who's who's who. Who's who. (laughs) Um, So after the duel, the nobility no longer wants anything to do with Baldwin. He's shut out of that world, and so with nothing left to lose, he decides to basically just spend all his money getting super drunk and partying with people and doing things like smashing everything in a bar, but then like giving everyone a bunch of money so that like you can get replacements. Yeah, and this is where Ladushka gets more to do than in the original mm-hmm. because we see a similar thing where Ladushka approaches Baldwin after the duel has gone awry to be like, I still like you. Yeah. And he just kind of brushes her off. In this one, she approaches him and he's like, oh, Ladushka. Yeah. My girl. And starts like macking out with her and like mm-hmm. drinking more. And like by this time he's very drunk. Yeah. Just starts a huge party in this place and is very affectionate towards her. Yeah. He's acting in a self-destructive manner. Oh, 100%. And his, I felt like, you know, he takes on Ladushka as like a consolation prize, right? Yeah. But you're right. And Baldwin's behavior gets more and more out of control control. There's a scene in the original where he's at a poker game and no one will play poker with him anymore. And then like the double comes and it's the only one who will play poker with him. There's a similar scene in this movie, but it doesn't involve the double. Instead, it serves this plot functionality of showing you that even the student body is starting to abandon him because he's been expelled for killing someone. Yes. He gets expelled from the university. He's, his behavior's out of control. He's acting like an ass to everybody. Word starts going around how Baldwin gave his word that he wouldn't kill the dude and then proceeded to kill the dude. So people are reconsidering his character. Yeah. He has, he has no honor. So he's finally kind of left with nobody. And as he loses these things, you know, as he's losing the respect of the nobility and the respect of his friends, you can see it wear on Baldwin more and more in Conrad Veidt's performance. Mm -hmm. Finally, all he's got left kind of is Ladushka and, uh... Yeah, she comes to his room at night and, uh, fade to black. Yeah, they have (laughs) some implied sex. There's an interesting (laughs) crosscut here where they go to have sex, implied, and we cut to Margit praying to, like, a big cross on the wall that she's got, a big crucifix, uh, praying to Jesus for... It's for Baldwin's soul, right? Presumably. Like, there's no title card or Mm -hmm. anything, 
Unless it was for her mm-hmm. cousin. Yeah, for the fiance. Yeah. So when we come back from there, Baldwin and Ladishka are waking up in bed fully clothed. And Ladishka sees Margaret's crucifix around Baldwin's neck and is like, oh, give that to me. I want that as like a keepsake of you. And in this version, that's what seals her fate is like, Baldwin's like, no, because Ladishka's a replacement for Margaret, but she's not what he really wants, right? Yeah. So he leaves and kind of throws her off of himself and goes to see Margaret to try and apologize and explain. And it's like the middle of the night and he like sneaks into her mansion and scares her with that. Yeah, and it's like... And he also has like this crazy kind of look to him because Conrad Veidt is like such a great actor. Baldwin's lost everything. This is like his last ditch. Yeah, and it's like definitely a dark and stormy night. Yeah. And the feeling of this scene is so much different from the equivalent scene in the original because the the equivalent scene in the original is kind of just Baldwin shows up, sneaks into Margaret's place to like make out with her all like forbidden romance style. And she's into it. Yeah, and she's into it. Like Margaret in the original is just down to clown. Like she's just, she wants to have an effect with someone and she didn't really ever want to be with Valdis and she was into Baldwin. This version of Margaret is kind of more of her own person in a way where, you know, she's upset that Valdis is dead even though she was never really into him, but she was never really into Baldwin either. It was sort of a very one-way infatuation in a lot of ways. I think she appreciated the attention. Yeah. Yeah, when Baldwin shows up, she is like, no, you have blood on your hands. Like, like not even dealing with yeah, you. Yeah, you killed my cousin and fiancé. Like, Like, that's not cool. Whereas in the original, they had just been, like, romantically making out, and then she happens to see that he has no reflection in the mirror. In this version, Baldwin's trying to explain that, no, he didn't commit this murder. He can prove it. It was someone else. And she's like, well, if you didn't do it, who did? And he takes her on purpose over to her mirror and shows her that he has no reflection. And that freaks her out to such a degree that she collapses to the ground. And that's when his double shows up. Yeah. There's very little title cards in, really in the movie as a whole. And the double sort of approaches to Baldwin. It's a very creepy, spooky scene in the darkness. And the double kind of gestures Mm -hmm. to Margaret. And then there's an amazing shot where it's a close-up on the double. And they do... A vertigo shot. Yeah. Which I had never seen, like, I had no idea that a movie in 1926 had done this shot. If listeners aren't familiar with what the vertigo shot is... It's the shot where it's either a zoom in or a static frame on the person, but then the background moves, right? Yeah, what it looks like is the person in the shot stays exactly the same in the shot, and it looks like the background's moving around them. The way that you accomplish that shot is you move the camera and zoom at the same time, but in the opposite direction, so that your subject stays the same, but the background does this weird disorienting thing behind them. And it does that, and he suddenly is over by the door. He's shifted position, and he rings the bell for the servants. Like, he... The way I interpreted this scene was that Margaret has died of a heart attack. That she saw the lack of the reflection and died. And that Baldwin's double is now going to frame him for the murder by calling the servants in while Baldwin's in the room. Baldwin pieces from the house, and he's running from his double now. And there's this amazing sequence of Baldwin running full tilt away from this double down a road as the double just walks 
calmly after him, but Baldwin never manages to, like, get any further away from the double. Would that be another use of Vertigo stuff? I'm not sure. The way it was framed, where the camera was kind of looking down on the two of them and we could see the road moving, I wasn't sure if they had the road on some sort of treadmill-like thing. I thought that too, yeah. Uh, But it's a really cool, effective shot. And now we get the sequence, you know, where it's Baldwin trying to escape his double, and no matter where he goes in town, the double's approaching him from out of shadows and doorways and around corners. Yeah, at one point, Baldwin goes through a gate and is, like, holding it shut. And oh, it's yeah. like a, an iron gate, so you can see through it. And the double just walks through the gate. Yeah, and it's really <laughs> well done. Yeah. Because um, it doesn't look like... It doesn't have that see-through look of double exposure yeah. that you get from, say, the when people walk through things like in Phantom Carriage, for example. You know, Baldwin's double looks solid, but just walks through the gate. Yeah, um, that's so cool. You know, Baldwin runs to his rich house, opens the door, or rings the, the doorbell or whatever, and the servant who answers the door is just his double again. So he runs away from there. And this is another change. I think the climax of the original was in his manner. That it he was. had as a rich man. In this version, he can't go there because the double's there. So he runs away and eventually ends up back at his old apartment from when he was a poverty-stricken student. Mm-hmm. And he runs into there, and again, the double is there. And by now, the lighting has gone... Like, like full expressionist. Full expressionist, yeah. This movie kind of does, in a similar way to the original, kind of starts in a real-world, naturalistic place and ramps up the expressionism as the horror ramps up. Yeah. By this point, Conrad Veidt is just crazy. He's gone mad. He's totally desperate. And the double's there, just approaching at him. The double's standing in front of the mirror that he walked out of. And Veidt's looking at the double and shoots the double. The double opens up his That's jacket. That's very true. Yeah, unlike in the and, original, yeah. Yeah, and just like stands there and is waiting to be shot. Yeah, the, the, the double basically goads him into doing it. You know, like, this is the point. This is what the goal of all of this was to get you to this point. And that's very clear in this version. When he shoots the double, the mirror crumbles behind him, like, because, like, it's like the mirror got shot. Yes. And we get, like, this amazing reaction stuff with Conrad Wright being like, I see my reflection again, and some really neat shots. But then, of course, like, in the original, he's shot himself. This version of the film has a different kind of framing structure to the original. The original was framed around these quotes from this obscure poem. And Wasn't all this... that Avenging Conscience? No. It was the poem about like how you, you can't escape yourself and blah, blah, blah. Okay. I might be sad, but I'll never be lonely because I'm always with myself and blah, blah, blah. It's there. This is framed with like an opening shot on Baldwin's grave. Yes. And, and then is ending with that shot as well. Yeah, and, and what's different there is the original had the double sitting on Baldwin's grave because that was a line from the poem that they were framing the original with. This version is just the grave. Whereas the first one was like, this is a romantic drama. Just kidding. It's a horror film. This is like, no, dude's going to die. Mm -hmm. You know this going in. Yeah. So it has like this feeling of dread throughout the rest of it. The other thing that's different about the ending is Scapinelli doesn't show up again. Right. Yeah. We, he shoots himself and then we just cut to the grave. That's yeah. right. My opinion is that, you know, even though in many ways this is the same movie, in a dozen or so small ways, some of which we've already elucidated, this 
improves on the original in almost every scene. As far as I'm concerned, this is the better film. I agree this is the better film. Kind of what I was pointing out with, like, when the double came out of the mirror and things like that, and, like, the magic trick with the gold coming out of the purse, I feel like those were better done in the first one. So what kept me coming along with the remake was the better acting, the shot variation, mm -hmm. the way that editing was going on. Like, when Baldwin stops the horse from, like, going crazy with Marguerite on the back, that was, like, some really impressive editing. So it was, like, things that were clearly, like, this is a better made movie that yeah. kept me going along. And then the spooks started to get me a bit more in this. So it, it took me a while to, like give it that that gold star i guess sure i mean many of the film's advantages are just due to the advancements in like film techniques in the past 13 years of course yeah, it's like <laughs> we have close-ups now we have moving cameras we have zoom we have uh much more creative staging and framing we sort of already mentioned this but like to a man the remakes cast is superior conrad veidt is so much better as baldwin than paul wiegner it's incredible to me the depth and layers and strength that he brings to the part with his the control he has of his body and his expressions and his eyes it's enough to give the whole character a different atmosphere yeah i found his performance as the doppelganger gave a whole nother layer to that character absolutely yeah it's a very different feel yeah in the original it definitely felt like this unrelenting force that's really just there because he really just wants to fuck up your life mm -hmm. in here we see like these moments of like remorse and like every time he shows up he's either like acting like a puppet mm -hmm. looks incredibly upset at being forced to do things he doesn't want to do mm -hmm. And then when Baldwin's running away from the doppelgangers coming out of the woodwork and everything, and he gets to his manor and his doppelganger opens the door, doppelganger looks infuriated, just yeah. furious, and like slams the door. Mm -hmm. It just made the doppelganger a character in and of itself rather than just a reflection of this dude. Same with Baldwin. I really felt like he, like Conrad Veidt, allowed Baldwin's sleazeballness come through a lot more than Paul Wegener's. Yes. Okay, so this is my biggest thing. Mm. For me, the most significant thing this movie does is it fixes the biggest problem that I had with the original film. In this version, Baldwin deserves what's happening to him. If you go back and you listen to episode two, I complained that one of the things that made it a weak morality tale was that Baldwin was just a poor student who Scapinelli just takes advantage of and then gets manipulated into killing himself and he never really, like, what did he do to deserve this? Mm -hmm. In this version, he has flaws. He's very mercurial. He's prideful. He's oblivious to anyone other than himself and his own needs. He's an asshole. The changes in Baldwin's character and the changes you brought up in how the double is portrayed, for me, like, changes the central message of what the story is about from the original kind of being about a fear of losing control over your life because this guy's running around and fucking with it and nobody believes you to this film saying this was a story that to me every step of the way on the writing and the visuals was saying you cannot escape yourself 
that Baldwin has all these problems that he the fact that they added the scene of him getting into the duel at the start and and the fact that he's an ass to Ladushka and that he has these whenever anything doesn't go his way he gets angry about it and stuff that the things that the double does like yes Baldwin didn't do any of those things but they're all things that are things that Baldwin probably could have done given the chance and the double is there to basically say I am here as a representation of your flaws fucking you over and so with that in mind like this version really feels more like a film about Baldwin getting what's coming to him I totally agree I was thinking about how the fears in this one and in the original compared. So the first one is, what will your other self do? It feels like you don't have any control over that. Mm-hmm. Whereas this one is definitely like this terrible person getting his comeuppance. Yeah. But I felt like the source of the fear was best demonstrated by what the doppelganger was afraid of. Mm. What will the devil make me do? Okay. He he very much feels like a puppet, mm-hmm. and a big part of why I think of him, uh, of this like imagery of the puppet or marionette, is because when it's after Baldwin <laughs> yeah. is like rejected and he's in the bar being a real ass, and like this dude comes in to sell his wares, and it's just like party toys, and the first thing that Baldwin picks up is a little puppet, mm-hmm. a little paper puppet. Yeah. And I think there's, like, a thematic thing going there, for sure. I also feel like in the first one, it was like, yeah, the devil just wants to get your soul. Like, he's going to fuck with you to to a specific goal. Mm. In this, because he doesn't show up at the end, he's just fucking with someone who kind of deserves it. Yeah, it. this film really gets the morality tale feeling behind it a lot better, and it's a lot clearer. All the horror that Baldwin experiences is of his own making, both literally in the fact that, you know, he's the one who made the deal that got this <laughs> doppelganger and that made him rich, and that. but, you know, in, in the first film, as I said, like, you never felt like he really deserved it. He just kind of got conned, which is why we sort of had such a criticism of Scapinelli in terms of what his racial stereotype might be and things like that because the film seems so much more judgmental of him and in this film there's really none of that because Baldwin is so much more the focus and his character is so much more the focus and you see that he's a very Byronic person and he's not necessarily an evil person but his double performs all these evil acts that are entirely sort of within keeping of Baldwin's flaws, I think. Yeah. The plot of the film is near identical, but the tone is such that this doesn't feel like, you know, the romantic drama with a supernatural twist. This feels like a psychological character study. We watch Baldwin gradually lose everything and everyone, and we see him become more and more unhinged with each loss uh, until he's finally left only with himself and, you know, with his double. And so by the end, when he gets to that point where he shoots the double, his desperation feels earned. It also feels like a Greek tragedy because it opens with (laughs) us knowing that he's going to die. Yeah, for sure. It's inevitable. There's a feeling of inevitability. And and that's definitely, you know, highlighted by the double being the one who opens up the coat and exposes his breast to be shot, right? Yeah. This film feels like it earns a lot of its moments a lot more. This is a, a much more confident telling of this story. I think that the the original had these pretentious divergences, you know, quoting old poems and literary sources. This movie feels like it's engaged in telling its story, not in just referencing the works of other people. 
We had talked about this in a very early episode where horror films, because they were so new, they wanted to pair themselves with, like, acceptable works of art, mm-hmm. like literature. And that's why we kept seeing, like, these Poe adaptations and things. But was this, like, this is... 13 years since the very first horror feature film. Yeah. It's been a few years since German Expressionism was a thing. Like you said, it is way more confident in what it's doing, and I think it has a reason to be. For sure. I mean, character motivations feel so much clearer and and better integrated into the story. Like, Ladishka has gone from just being kind of an instrument of the plot to feeling like she's a character in her own right, even though she basically still does the same things. Yeah. Margaret's character... I really love that they give her this Christianity belief because, like we said earlier, she feels like an independent person. She doesn't just feel like she's there to fall in love with Baldwin. She sort of is reacting to the world around her according to her psychology in a way that makes sense. The thing that I was thinking about was, of course, some of this complexity might be due to the higher expectation for narrative and thematic content in 1926 (laughs) as opposed to 1913. Yeah. Right? But I also wonder how much a lot of what we've been talking about is due to the fact that Baldwin's no longer being portrayed by the film's author, so he's now allowed to have this more flawed and intriguing characterization. Like, You know I love Paul Wagner. Yeah. He's not as... Skilled an actor as Conrad Veidt. No. He is not able to portray the range of emotions and of madness. In the first student of Prague, Wagner is very much like, I'm a student. I'm sad that I'm poor. I'm getting money. I'm in love. But there's a guy following me? (laughs) Why does he keep following me? I'll shoot him. I'm shot myself. I'm dead. Yeah. Whereas Veidt has even just like these very subtle... I I swear to God, he must be able to, like, flex individual muscles on his forehead. Yeah, absolutely. He has... It is so impressive. He's got such control over every movement that he makes. And, like, we saw that control in Olak's hand. For sure. But here, it actually is paired with a good plot. Sure. <laughs> the The reason I brought up Wigner playing Baldwin, but also being the, the writer and director of the original, is... Some of the differences that I see is like, you know, in the original, Baldwin was a great guy and just had shitty stuff happen to him. Wigner was like 40 when he played Baldwin in the original, so he was basically playing a younger man who's a dashing swashbuckler who gets a countess to fall in love with him, and like in that original version, like she just wants to have an affair with him. So I sort of identified it as like, In the original, there's a little bit of, like, Paul Wigner gets to be, like, a young, dashing gentleman who has an affair with a rich woman who's totally into it. Whereas in this version, there's so much more complexity added in and so much more psychological depth and drama and and these negative factors added into all these characters that felt like, like, yes, it's because it's a later movie and we have better actors and all this other stuff, but we're also not feeding into anyone's ego. So one thing I did want to talk about was, um, what did you think of the special effects in this film? Because I remember being very impressed by the effects in the original. I sort of felt like the effects in this movie were like just as good as the original, and maybe even better in places. Um, certainly deployed more creatively. I mean, I kind of talked about this earlier, but for stuff like the magic trick with the coin purse and the creation of the doppelganger, I feel like those were achieved better in the first one. Okay. 
That being said, the first one had the creation of the doppelganger, blew our minds. Yes. And then nothing else, as far as the special effects in the movie, really hit that level again. This one, the remake, you know, had the the whole mirror thing. Spooky. But then when he's being chased by the doppelganger, walking through the gate, having like a treadmill road and like the shadow of Scapinelli, clearly this movie is putting a lot of thought into how it's creating this mood and generating a feeling of supernatural energy. Yeah, I would totally agree with you. I also feel like the mirror shots in this film like need to be seen to be believed. Like The common way to do shots like these, where you've got, oh, someone's looking in a mirror, but the mirror doesn't match them, is you just have, there's no mirror, and you just have a hole in the wall. And the actor on the, whose face you can see on the other side. But in these cases, we were so clearly seeing the actor in front of the mirror and their face, the actor's reflection and their face, and then Conrad Veidt in front of the mirror, but no Conrad Veidt in the mirror. I was always just super impressed. I have no clue how they did it unless it was with some really good split screening. Some, some of the split screening in this movie really blew my mind because, you know, we talked about how good the split screening was in the original to put Baldwin and his double in the same place. This one is just as good, if not better, because they go out of their way to do things like put them in the same place on a windy day so that there's like trees and bushes blowing in the wind behind them and you're going like well the wind is consistent though across what should be a split screen and i can see both their faces like what is going on the shots are they're close enough that you can see both conrad veidt's emotions and reactions they're not doubles you know it's not it's not william shatner and his stunt double (laughs) yeah i want to know how they did it like it was very well done yeah, I, I really enjoyed the way that this film expanded on things from the original. Like, we've talked already about Scapinelli and his powers, the way that he's more of an architect of the film's events. That being said, uh, and we've, we've addressed both of these already, so maybe this is redundant, but I would say that there's basically just two places where this movie let me down. Okay. And one would be that we don't get that shot of Scapinelli taking the double away from Baldwin's apartment. Mm-hmm. And the other would be that we don't have Scapinelli come back at the end. That that Baldwin just dies at the end and we end on Conrad Veidt. And especially because Scapinelli was given like more to do in this version, it felt incomplete to not have him come back at the end to tie things up. Like, even if it was as simple as um, Scapinelli sitting on Baldwin's grave, <laughs> Sure, right? sure. It just feels like a missed opportunity not to see him again, especially when you've got Werner Krauss in the role and he's a big deal actor and, and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Like, so many scenes from the original movie are are replicated, you know, so exactly that it really does feel like a loss if you've seen both versions to not have these Scapinelli moments. And, And to not have him at the end just, it feels like the movie's forgotten about him somehow. It makes me wonder, in the beginning of the episode, you mentioned how Veidt and Krauss go separate ways because of the politics happening in Germany. I'd be curious to see if there was anything behind the scenes that would have led to, like, Veidt just being kind of done with working with Krauss, but I wonder if he was just like, enough's enough, I'm done with this dude. I don't know, like, how much of the anti-Semitic Nazi philosophy and politics had really come into a place where that would be something that Krauss would be expressing or that Veidt would be wary of or, or anything. It's it's yeah. hard to say by this date. 1923 was when Hitler became the 
leader of the Nazi party. Yeah, but then after the failure of his coup attempt, they threw him in jail. And it was in jail where he wrote Mein Kampf. So a lot of the philosophical stuff that serves as the basis for that movement haven't really quite happened yet. Mein Kampf wasn't published until 25, so it would have been published for a year. Okay. I mean, it's possible. They do share a lot of scenes together in the movie, so it just makes me wonder, like, why he's not there at the end, because, like, Veidt's dead by that point anyways. Like you said, it it just feels weird that he doesn't come back. To me, that was the, the only real strike against this movie from, like, a narrative structure standpoint that, like, this character gets forgotten. Yeah. Uh, so, to move into ranking, it's very easy to just, like, directly compare this to the first movie, like we've been doing. I think I can confidently say we agree that this one should go above the first Soon of Prague. Yeah. If you're directly comparing it, we've said it before in this episode, this is an improvement, therefore it should go above it. So sitting above the first student of Prague is Orlak's Hand, and I would put this student of Prague above Orlak's Hand, mm-hmm. because you still get that descent into madness. In student of Prague, it's not as, like, intense as in Orlak's Hand. No. Because Orlak's Hand was so concerned with showing the descent into madness, rather than the plot, mm-hmm. whereas this one is like, no, here's a plot to, to go with it all. He, he, the thing about it is, it's not as intense as Orlex Ham, but it's better integrated. Yeah. Like, the the set into madness and the plot happen hand in hand in this film. In Orlex... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In Orlex Hand, the descent into madness is a thing that happens, and the plot happens, but they're not really related to each other that greatly. So um, I would put st- the Stune of Prague above Orlek's hand. Yeah, I would agree with you. Now it's being compared to Phantom of the Opera. Sure, so um, Phantom of the Opera is better. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, was really, I was really trying to think about it. I'm willing to give this movie a bit of like a boost, like just to show my own bias, mm. because it's German and it's working with German Expressionism, yeah. whereas Phantom is just using German Expressionist things in an American film. Mm-hmm. But honestly, I think Phantom was more chilling to me. Phantom is, what it does well is it starts the creepy atmosphere early and never lets it go. Yeah. Uh, even in scenes where we're watching the ballet or the opera or the masquerade ball, we don't sit on those things so long that we forget that we're watching a scary movie. Student of Prague is very good. But it does have that pacing problem of occasionally we stop for, like, a society dance ball and we kind of forget about that this is a spooky movie for a bit. Or we stop for, you know, the the hunt and we forget it's a spooky movie for a bit. Or we have the party scene with Baldwin uh, spending all his money and we forget it's a spooky movie for a bit. And all those scenes accomplish plot goals, but the atmosphere of the film kind of dips out a bit. So yeah, I would I would put this below Family Opera, above Hands of Orlac. Cool. We are agreed. Excellent. Nice and simple. No so, long debate this week. <laughs> so going in on the list at number five is Der Student von Prague from 1926, directed by Henrik Galeen. 
Great, so if you would like to see this list, you can check out our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can also find our playlist and watch the films along with us. You can find an ask box where you can submit appeals or suggestions. You can also submit appeals or suggestions or general comments if you want at our email, screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, and on Twitter, at underscore screamscene. We update every Wednesday. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and find us on SoundCloud as well. And we would love it if you could leave us a review on iTunes since that's how other people can find our podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, uh, do you remember earlier in this episode I was talking about the director Paul Lenny and his film Waxworks and how that was impressive enough that Carl Lemley invited him over to the States to make movies for Universal Studios. So... The first film that he made for Universal Studios was The Cat and the Canary from 1927, and that's what we'll be watching next week. It's a another one of these American comedians have to spend the night in a spooky house. Uh, explicitly, this is the movie where the you have to spend the night in the spooky house to get your inheritance trope comes from, but because Lenny's directing it, it has a lot of spooky German expressionist style to it. Cool. Well, I look forward to it. We'll see if it's as good as the bat. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well, thank you for listening, Creatures of the Night. We will see you next week. Bye. Bye.